This is Belmont Voices, your guide to the people, places, and stories in one small New York neighborhood. I'm your host, Jack Betts. My guest today is Father George Drantz, who is a Jesuit priest and a member of my community. Welcome, George. Thank you, Jack. Pleasure to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience of being in New York. You're not originally, you're from Long Island, which is New York, right? Yeah, well, I think we would like to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Some people see Long Island as its own thing, but um, I uh, have to remember that uh, when my parents, who were Manhattanites, uh, when they were uh, first married, Long Island was considered the country. And so it was lovely to move out to the country, which is now strip malls, but good use of country. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I think we started a trend. (laughs) So I consider myself a New Yorker. And you uh, now teach at Fordham University, but there's two campuses at Fordham, and you have been down at the one in Lincoln Center, correct? That's right. And you used to live closer to it. So how do you like living in the Bronx? And more specifically, would you say you live in the Belmont neighborhood, or you live at Fordham? Well, I think... I live at Fordham, but uh, certainly go in and out of the Belmont neighborhood. There are wonderful things in the neighborhood that I love. I, I, I really love the botanical gardens, and I go there quite a bit. Yeah. So you would put the garden up there. Uh, do you get into like uh, Arthur Avenue, the whole Italian, Albanian thing? Well, it's been fun. Uh, the last two summers, I've worked in Kosovo, and so to come back and find some places that remind me very much of, of the people that I met and that I worked with over the summer has been fun. I love walking down and in a pizza shop seeing a neon Barek sign. I know? had Barek this morning at that place. At that very place. And you know, I asked the guy, I was like, so what do I, why else this yogurt? And he's like, well, well you have to. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, it's Barek. Now I, mean, I know he was looking at me like I was an idiot. Uh, it's Barek. That's what he said. <laughs> I was like, well, then I'll take the yogurt. <laughs> of course. I mean, I mean that, that's... And that is exactly as it, as it is in Kosovo. It's if you don't get the yogurt with the barek, they look at you like you're crazy, or they know that it's takeout. Yeah, <laughs> and that you have yogurt at home. Because <laughs> I asked him, I said, "Well, how do you eat it?" He said, "The barek in one hand and the yogurt in the other." <laughs> going to kind of walk me through it. Yeah. When you talk about Albanian Kosovars as you know a people or a group or a culture, what is it that kind of stands out that you see here as well? I'd say uh, it's it's a very distinct culture. The language is really unlike any other. I, I speak several languages, and Al- Albanian is, is just really complicated, really unique. It's kind of like a, a mythical storybook culture. I mean, you look at their own mythology and their legends, and there are these grand epic things of loyalty and love and honor and all of those things that we mm-hmm. seem to have forgotten in today's day and age. But in their folk culture, in their in their songs and in their dances and in their traditions, it's still very, very, very mm-hmm. much alive. And uh, that's, that's beautiful to see. The artists that I met in Kosovo uh, were people who were really committed to uh, keeping that tradition alive. But I also felt that they were people who really went into the heart of the matter. They were very open to new things. They were very adept at really finding what was the most important focus in mm-hmm. in each aspect of the work, and they were able to go into, into it 
when we asked for feedback and asked them to talk about their experience, they were very free about speaking about their own experience. And they did it really quite astutely. And uh, some of the best work that we did as, as a company uh, came because of what the um, Albanian Kosovar artists brought to it. Mm. We also worked with um, Serbian mm-hmm. artists there. Uh, Kosovo is a region that's really healing from that violence. One of the beautiful things was to see how much time they took to translate into the various languages in the room so that everyone could be included. Yeah, I often go to Prince, which I think we've been to at the very end of Arthur Avenue, and um, it's, it's run by Kosovars. And you can smoke there. Oh, we, I, you, you're, you have to. <laughs> I, I was asked to leave once because I wasn't smoking. Uh, <laughs> the waitress gave me the, my coffee. I greeted her in Albanian. She said, oh, I don't speak that. <laughs> <laughs> so so that was that reminded me that I was, yes, back in the Bronx. It's still, it's still there. <laughs> but what I'm struck with is that, first of all, there's all of these guys in their 20s and 30s there. Mm-hmm. that come in and come and go and know each other and that sort of thing. And I'm really struck by how uninterested that group of guys are in being cool. They may look fierce and kind of tough, but with each other, they're really warm and available. Mm-hmm. And like just like there's none of this kind of being cool. When guys see each other that, that like each other mm-hmm. and know each other, mm-hmm. there's all these big hugs and kind of holding on to each other right. and you know being really attentive and available to each other. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that is not how American guys do it. There's something about being with people that you just feel at home with that really allows you to drop your guard. And are and you saying you as Americans or in general or Kosovars? I'm saying you as just people. Yeah. There's just a human phenomenon. But I would also say that uh, the culture, as I experienced it, was very welcoming, uh, very transparent, kind of a what you see is what you get. Now, part of that could be the history of what that region is and mm-hmm. how much conflict they had. And they know how precious life is because mm-hmm. your house might not be there tomorrow. Your family mm-hmm. might not be there tomorrow. Having lived through things like that, there's a real reverence for life. There's a real celebration of life. And there's always the presence of that being taken away from you. So I think people know that life is maybe just a little too precious to be cool or to sacrifice that kind of camaraderie, that kind of community, that kind of family feel for the sake of some mask that we've imposed on ourselves like other cultures do. I was trying to figure out the kind of the religious makeup of Belmont. You know, you got your Catholics and and you got your people who aren't Catholic, and then I was like, well, are there Muslims, and you know, there's a mosque, and that sort of thing. I haven't made much progress in getting into the mosque mm-hmm. uh, yet, um, and I hear that it's more like Africans rather than um, other other varieties. Mm-hmm. Um, and then reading online, they were talking about the Kosovars as being Islam light, mm-hmm. in the sense of, we'll be Muslim as the Ottomans come in. Um, exactly. But I mean, it's not... Historically speaking, uh, the it was a way to be tax-exempt in the Ottoman mm. Empire. If you converted to Islam, then you didn't have to pay tax. So m- many of the people in Albania uh, converted to Islam for that reason. M- many people found the depth of what they could spiritually in sure. that. And, yeah. and I know devout Muslims uh, who are 
Albanian Kosovars, and I know people who are in name only. Mm. Uh, I know people who would say that they have nothing or that they're mm -hmm. agnostic or, you know, and very much in the mix that you would have here as well. Uh, so tell me about the commute. I, I know that you're at Lincoln Center and you used to commute anyway. You were down on 14th Street, so you commuted anyway. Mm -hmm. But this is a much more substantial commute. Uh, and how do you go? How do you travel back and forth? I usually take the D train. Uh, and when I lived on 14th Street, it would be about a 10 to 20 minute commute. From on the D train as well. That would be on the A train. But what's really interesting is you do see a different population on the trains. And, and I wonder about the MTA and some of their choices. Uh, because <laughs> it is, uh, it's, it's marked uh, how, how different they are. For example, commuting back at night, there will be three A trains that go. And they're going to North Manhattan. The first one might be somewhat full, second pretty empty, third one very, very empty, but the trains keep coming, the A trains keep coming. The D trains, it'll be one D train to every three A trains, and it's always packed with people, and the demographic is very different who's there. It's it's mixed on the D train. It's, it's a, a very, very um, strong uh, ethnic mixture of, of people that kind of mirrors the ethnic tapestry of the Bronx. I don't like not being able to get a seat, <laughs> but what, as an actor, what I like is to see how different people negotiate getting seats. You know, the one thing that an actor is going to ask first is, what do I want? The second thing an actor is going to ask is, what do I do to get what I want? The third thing an actor is going to ask is, what's in my way? Well, you have that on the D train. <laughs> you know, if you can get over the stuff that would be considered an annoyance by the circumstances of my own expectations. If I can put my own expectations on hold and just really see what an incredible cross-section of humanity it is on that train, there's something very beautiful about it. And often I find myself praying and, and remembering that first meditation of the second week uh, the meditation on the incarnation of mm -hmm. the Trinity looking over the whole expanse of the globe. And that's kind of the D-train. So when I can get over myself and get over my mood and stop imposing really ridiculous expectations of myself and just imagine where these people have come from, what their journey to this place has been, what it must have been like for them to establish themselves, the courage, the ingenuity, uh, the resourcefulness that they must have had to really build the lives, mm -hmm. you know, to see the way different people interact. Obviously, there are people that recognize each other and know each other as neighbors or co-workers. There are people who keep to themselves. There are the crazy people. There are the, uh, the closed-off people. It's a, a real beautiful microcosm of what the Bronx is, but also what humanity is. What surprised you about being up here? Has it been hard to do being on an island that has, I mean, because Fordham is a walled campus mm -hmm. and the, the neighborhood is on the outside. So you kind of move through different different barriers as you even just leave the D train and you come down to Fordham and then you get on. Do you ever think, well, gosh, you know, Fordham should be without walls? Because I know in the past it had been. When I do, I always go back to the very, very first steps of Fordham where this was all farmland. Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, I think of the time when, you know, over at the Botanical Gardens, it was the Lorillard's estate and the, the stone mill that they call it now used to be the snuff mill where they would grind the tobacco into snuff and the Lorillard's made their fortune on tobacco and country clubs. And so this was the country in the same mm -hmm. way that when my parents got married, uh, Long Island was the country. So to see how now it's this bustling metropolis that's teetering on the verge of regentrification is really very, very interesting. So yeah, in a lot of ways, I do feel like we're, we're in the island, um, that the walls protect us. And I understand with parents wanting their children to be in an area that's pretty safe, I can understand where that's an importance to mm -hmm. them. See, if, if, you, if you were to ask 10 different parents what kind of experience they would want for their children, they would all have 10 different answers. Yes, yeah, true. But I don't think that any of them would sacrifice the, the risk of what it is. I mean, there is, there is still a lot of violence in the neighborhood. And, you know, I, when I'm going to my morning dance class, I listen to 1010 Winds in the car. And there's always something about violence in the Bronx almost every morning. So, uh, so that's around us. And it's, I think a lot of it has to do with the tension and the stress of people really trying to make it mm -hmm. in this city, uh, people being taken out of their own uh, cultural environment and being put into an environment where people aren't necessarily talking to each other or mm -hmm. where they are in little pods or where people do feel disconnected. But uh, whatever it is, I think the parents who send their students, who send their, their kids here to be students, uh, are really concerned for their safety. So yeah. I get that. I understand that. There are those vestiges of the past that you still see, like when you walk down Grand Concourse and the the facade of of some of the buildings, uh, you know, in, in different styles from Art Deco, Art Nouveau, just some of the architecture, so grand. Remember that that really was where the horse and buggies came mm -hmm. at one point and then the automobile once the automobile was invented that was a, a big thing was to go on a drive down the mm -hmm. concourse and see all these wonders so i mean you see that and you see what's become of it how this gorgeous carved facade is a 99 cent store mm -hmm. but then you see what's happening in the rest of the city where the 99 cent stores are slowly slowly closing and Gap or, you know, any of the chains that are coming in, like the... Pret-a-Manger. Yes. <laughs> yeah, couldn't, couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> but any of these, you know, like, I, I don't know, Old Navy. And so w when they start coming in, you know that there's real changes happening in the neighborhood. What does that mean for the future? I think it's anybody's guess. Sure, yeah. But I think there's those two values of authenticity to what it is and who we are and where we've come from and what the reality is mm -hmm. and uh, vision as to what we want to become and who we what kind of life we want for ourselves so there is a stability that a lot of these bigger chains happen but they do elbow out a lot of people who are really struggling to make it yeah. and who have really made the the community and and the city what it is uh so 
Characteristic sound of the Bronx. Do you have one? I would say it is a kind of crescendo and diminuendo of the particular music of the automobile as it drives by you. <laughs> Truly. Depending on, on, um, on, on who's driving and where they're from. Mm-hmm. But you just hear, for, for some of them, it's, I don't know if it's, uh, it's a, if it's a confessional mode of performance where I'm <laughs> announcing to the world who I am that the music just blares, but uh, there's no doubt about the fact that that person who is driving the car really wants that music to be heard by yeah. everyone. George, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being the, the first guest on this podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you.